Asante came to TurboTax after graduating from culinary school and landing a job in the hottest kitchen in town. My hands are full all day, every day. I love it. Asante, as your TurboTax expert, I'll make your moves count, guaranteeing 100% accurate filing and your maximum refund. Sound good? Yes, expert! Switch to Intuit TurboTax and make your moves count. See guarantee details at TurboTax.com guarantees. Experts only available with TurboTax Live. the RPG Bob Dot Podcast. I'm Randall James, your puzzled puzzler. With me is Tyler Kamstra. Hi, everybody. And Random Pal. Evening. All right, Tyler, what's going on? Well, tonight we're going to talk about puzzles. Puzzles are a staple of Dungeons & Dragons going back to the earliest, earliest days of the game. Essentially, as soon as the game stopped being just violence... Puzzles were one of the first things that came in. And at the same time, puzzles have been one of those things that people have struggled to do well for as long as Dungeons & Dragons has been a game. So tonight we're going to talk about how to handle puzzles, some examples of different methods for handling puzzles that might suit your tastes, and we'll go through some examples of how a puzzle is handled in each of the methods we're going to propose. In my mind, there are essentially three different ways to handle puzzles puzzles method one is generally the method that people go to by default it's the all-player method quote-unquote so this is essentially you put away the character sheets you hand your players a puzzle of some kind and the players are expected to then solve that puzzle on their own before the game can proceed before they unlock the door or get the treasure or save the princess whatever method two is essentially players with bonuses from their character stats. So it's very similar to method one, the all players method, but when players get stuck, the DM can give the players hints based on their character stats. This is usually where people end up after trying method one and getting stuck on a puzzle. If your players have relevant skills or tool proficiencies or high intelligence or something like that, the DM might give them hints or just help in general to solve the puzzle. If you've read the section on puzzles in Tasha's Cauldron of Everything and a lot of other books, this is generally the recommended advice. Like, here's this puzzle, here's some skill checks that you might use to give the players hints. Method three is the all-character method. So instead of players attempting to solve a puzzle that you give to the players, the characters themselves encounter a puzzle. Instead of testing the player's wits with potentially an assist from their character stats, you're testing the characters. So the characters encounter a puzzle. And rather than the player saying like, oh, yes, with my real-world knowledge of physics, I... um, push button B and pull lever C and the door pops open and shoots confetti. Instead, the characters themselves must make skill checks, apply their own capabilities, use tools, use spells, use items. Yeah, because in in real life, the players may or may not have seen an abacus, but in the game, these characters have never seen an abacus. There's no such thing as an abacus, because who wants to do math if you live in a fantasy land? <laughs> I mean, that depends on whether or not you subscribe to the uh, the belief that magic is just fancy math. One thing that I did just want to cut in here with real quick, puzzles, there's there's a lot of things that can be puzzles. A, a, a very standard thing that you might encounter in a dungeon is like some kind of physical representation in the book, usually like a picture, and then like a riddle to help you try and figure something out. Anything can be, you know, if you want to just like go with a straight riddle, physical handouts can be really cool if you're an in, if you're at an in-person table because it engages the players really well. A thing that you could do is just hand your group one of those three by three slidey tile things to make a picture. If you want that to be a combo lock on a door, Magic has done weirder things. Absolutely go nuts. I have a perfect rendition of Pikachu now. Can I come in? <laughs> you could even make it a humorous hint as to what was behind that door if what you have is Pikachu, and then congratulations, it's a Pikachu. <laughs> Don't ask how that got into this D&D game. Not important. While I'm on this sidebar, this is something that you're really going to want to talk to your players about ahead of time because 
puzzles can be intensely frustrating for players. If you bar progression behind a puzzle, that can end up creating a really unpleasant experience for your players. What that means is, and again, this is a thing where it's going to behoove you to know what you're planning to do. At the end of the previous session, say, hey, guys, we're going to come across this puzzle. I'm really excited about presenting it this way. Are you guys up for that? And take feedback. As long as everyone's up for that, great. Then you have the buy-in. Go in, give the puzzle. And even still, figure out what what we'll be going down into this here in a bit. Have some hints that you can give them, either just straight meta hints if you're going for, like, uh, method one, or some in-character hints that you can give them. Because while it's also been around forever, it's been frustrating kind of forever. Yeah, I'll say uh, I want to completely destroy the trichotomy that we've created. <laughs> so we have the idea of, like, the player, which it, it's straight meta. There, there is no character. There is only player. We have the player plus character working in tandem the way they're meant to be in a tabletop game. And then we have the, you know, oops, all character. Like, I'm not <laughs> going to give you any idea of what's actually happening here. I think we all recognize there's kind of a spectrum here. Tyler, when you talked about method two and, like, giving hints... Sometimes it might actually be you have to pass some skill to find out a necessary or a supplemental fact even. So it's even more than a hint. It's a necessary component of moving the puzzle forward. But the player is still going to have to know what to do with that in a way that to the character sometimes it's just not going to make sense. So it's really a wonderful way for the player and the character to work together. This is where it becomes really critical to be aware that if you are going to set something like what Randall just talked about, where it is a supplemental required fact that you hit on a, on a knowledge check, for instance, what if everyone fails? Yeah. You need to plan for that. Because if you go in and you're like, oh, well, yeah, of course my players are going to, and then you're staring at a pile full of threes that people rolled. It's like, but I said the DC is five. What are you guys doing? <laughs> that's just something to be really, really careful of, because that's where you immediately generate that instant feeling of helplessness because if you know if you're that player you're like well great we all rolled fives i guess we just i guess we live here now <laughs> pull out the adamantine shovel and try digging around the puzzle because that's realistically <laughs> your your path forward yeah and and hey don't worry folks at home we've got a plan for you it's gonna be great it can be great all right let's let's hop into it so let's talk about what it looks like to have an all-player puzzle uh, and as we were putting together notes, we were talking about it. I, I think I had the perfect example. Have any of you at home been to an escape room? I have. Folks at home, I bet, have too. Tyler, have you ever been to an escape room? I, with random, yes. Okay, good. Awesome. So you think about it. It's like a murder mystery escape room where like, you have to stop a bomb from going off or something like this. <laughs> and so you go in, and you're put in a room, and they're like, well, we would really love it if you caught the murder or stopped the bomb. But before you do that, if you lift this mattress... The slats holding up the mattress are color-coded, and we need you to put them in Roy G. Biv order. So you can get a clue. That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. It has nothing to do with the character you're playing in that role-playing scenario, right? Like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm here to stop a bomb. I'm not. I'm not really. I'm here to solve 16 puzzles in sequence before the hour goes off and you kick me out. Pretty much. That yeah. is a player-only puzzle. Yeah, that's a fantastic example. It's a puzzle for the fun of solving a puzzle in a lot of ways. And, yeah, escape rooms are a great comparison. Obviously, I don't expect people to interrupt their D&D game to go have a field trip to an escape room. But what <laughs> game awesome would that be? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Hey, <laughs> if you're ever missing a player, maybe just do that instead one day. Like, I just like... As the DM, just next week's session, meet up at this address. No explanation. <laughs> it's like, we're not going LARPing. We're kind of going LARPing. <laughs> not that there's anything wrong with LARPing. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> You're yelling at the person on the microphone, I rolled a 20. Just tell me what the clue is to get out of here. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, so escape rooms are a great example. But if you don't have an escape room in your house or wherever you're playing D&D, <laughs> D, more likely... You might do an all-player puzzle either described verbally or you might hand them some kind of prop. This could be as simple as you hand them a literal jigsaw puzzle and say, sort this out. Or it can be like, I have shredded a piece of paper that I wrote a message on, put the pieces together to figure out the message. It could be like a, a cipher or something. Here's the decoder thing. Here's the 
piece of paper with the encoded message, figure it out. You have this long before monsters storm into the room. Uh, I, I don't know. Maybe you hand them the Zodiac killer's message and say like, hey, oh, wait, my D&D group figured this out in two minutes. What happened? Yeah, I question your D&D group at that point. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I think there's a lot of rewarding structure in a puzzle like this because you, uh, I think a lot of folks who play tabletop games can become completely embedded, can completely become immersed in solving that puzzle, bluntly to the point where you're not even thinking about the game or the overall scenario you're in, because the only thing you want to do is solve the puzzle. So can it be very fun? Absolutely. Can it also break the immersion of the fact that you're playing a fantasy-based tabletop game? Yeah, kind of. For an all-player thing, and kind of looping back around to what I was saying about don't necessarily use this to gate progression... Uh, very early in my career, I was playing through a campaign that we won't go into very many details for because, oh boy, what a show. We were given as a reward this bow, and all by itself, it was a magical bow, but this bow also had seven, basically, Roy G. Biv arrows with it. There was like a almost epic riddle that came with it. And if you solved the riddle, it would tell you how to activate each of the arrows and what they did. The bow by itself could still be used as a magic bow, but then if you, you know, solved the all-player puzzle, then you got extra stuff. So that's just, like, that sort of thing. If you can figure out how to do that instead of gating progression behind it, I think you're going to end up with particularly if that's your way to like introduce people to puzzles or if that's your way to try and drag people like me who don't really like puzzles into a puzzle setting, that can be a really helpful tool to show people, you know, engage with this as much as you want. It's just bonus. If you want to go ham on it, absolutely go ham. And if you don't, then you still get a neat bow and you just don't get the extra cool artifact level arrows. Yeah, I love the idea. If you're going to do like a player no character puzzle, having it be a take it with you puzzle is fantastic. I'll also say, you know, we we've done whole shows talking about how to engage the players away from the game and keep people excited for the next round. What better than a player only puzzle that people could actually be talking about and thinking about in the background, uh, so that when you come back to the next session, like, hey, we talked about this. Does it have anything to do with this? Like, you know, is it A, B, or C? Like, that could be a really great way of getting folks engaged. So that if they solve it by the next session, maybe there is some bonus carrying into the next session. Even if the players get stuck on the puzzle, we did a podcast episode on failure that might provide some interesting advice on how to handle that. Failure doesn't have to be the end. There can be other consequences. But I I agree with you guys. Gating, Gating progression on a puzzle that the players might not be able to solve is incredibly frustrating. So make sure you give yourself an out. Unless you have a way... To get the characters in, I think that's a great time to step into kind of what we called method two, which is really we're just stepping forward in the spectrum. But yeah, let's talk about it. I think this is the best structure of puzzle for tabletop, where the player gets to use their wits, their their real world knowledge, and for certain pieces of the puzzle or for certain hints, they also get to rely on what the characters have and interactions with the world that the characters can perform. Yeah, so to recap, Method 2 is players with bonuses from their characters. Tasha's Cauldron of Everything, great resource on this. Even if you're playing other RPGs, the puzzle section both has advice and a bunch of really, really good examples that you can just rip out and use in whatever game you like. And I do actually, I want to stop for a second here. Like, the other thing I will say for those puzzles is they are infinitely reskinnable. Absolutely. You know, there's a lot of portrait puzzles that you could do other things with. Like you could, you know, oh, it's not a portrait. It's a tapestry and it's rolled up. Great. It's still the same puzzle. It's going to feel completely different. There are puzzles about like, you know, knights holding swords or tridents. And I've got these counts of things. And you can, you know, basically it's a number puzzle. Well, think of all the different ways that you can introduce the same idea of counts of things to provide your players a puzzle. So look for that for inspiration if you're trying to put together a good one. One other thing, if you are looking for an officially published source of a lot of good puzzle ideas, part of the Tales of the Awning portal, specifically the level 8 adventure White Plume Mountain, is a puzzle dungeon. It's literally just a puzzle dungeon that's meant to be like a like a 2-3 level part of the, you know, the Tales of the Awning portal interconnected one-shots. 
And there's a lot of really cool stuff in there. I ran that for some folks. I'm just going to say, just to leave this for you guys, super tetanus. <laughs> super, super tetanus. Super oh. tetanus. That sounds jaw-clinchingly fun. <laughs> <laughs> method two. This is where this is where most people usually end up after trying method one. If your players get stuck in method one, the best the best way to fix method one is to go to method two. At which point, you as the DM or GM are generally left to improvise hints to give your players based on their stats, like. Uh, my players are stuck. Someone roll me an intelligence check. They got a 29. Uh, space is cold? I come up with something. So well, and, and- <laughs> method two, if you're going to go with hints, personally, I recommend when you're planning the puzzle, the puzzle, come up with some hints ahead of time. Write them down to cater to a few different stats, include maybe things that your players might not expect to use, like tool proficiencies. If the puzzle is, I need to put this square peg into a square hole, maybe you say, oh, uh, woodworking tools or masonry tools or something would tell you, like, oh, yeah, this is the shape of, like, some kind of joint thing that I might do as a woodworker. So maybe come up with two per player that you think that they are likely to use, and that gives you some inspiration to draw from, even if you don't use those specific examples. And coming up with a hint that fits a skill, it'll take you like five seconds. Should be easy. Yeah, I think that's great advice. And I want to emphasize something that you said. Having maybe a couple different skill checks for the same hint catered towards different players and the reality of it is, if, if you're sitting behind the DM screen, your players won't know that the hint that player A just failed at is the hint that player B just got with the alternative skill that you had. So you've got a bank of hints that you have available to help them solve the problem. You have twice that number of skill checks that you're going to allow to get the hints. And I would finally say, ideally, not every hint is necessary to solve the puzzle. Like any one or two of them hopefully is enough to be able to put it together. You know, if you need, let's, and yeah, maybe we should differentiate. So there's a hint, which is like, have you thought about looking at X or you have the impression that the character size is important or something like this. Those are hints. The word uh, Sumatra is critical in solving the puzzle. That's not a hint. Like that's a key and you have to get that key, which means somebody has to pass this fill check to get there. So I think having a limited number of of keys and then a larger set of hints is the right way to design a puzzle like this. I would almost personally entirely stay away from having there be any RNG-based gates, like keys, like Randall was talking about. Because, uh, like I was talking about earlier, if everyone fails that, you have kind of painted yourself into a corner. I am a very big proponent for absolutely have some hints and you know even like randall was saying rather than maybe writing out like this hint could be this or this skill if someone makes a good case absolutely let let it go and and this is something that we'll, we'll maybe get even into it like as we talk about faux method three for a second if someone says uh all right well i'm going to hold the gnome wizard up to look at something at my eye level really clearly Maybe let them help with that, you know, and call that an athletic skill check. And, like, heck, yeah, you parade that gnome wizard around. <laughs> you, like, drag hit, drag him along all of the runes on the door. It's very helpful. Yeah. Provide something like that. Just reward the players for engaging, even if, they, even if the characters don't have traditional ways to engage with puzzles like that. Yeah, just the way that you've said that. So if you're a player at the table trying to solve a puzzle and failing all of your checks... When the DM says, what are you good at? That's when desperation <laughs> is set in. Oof. <laughs> yeah, right. There, there's something that I want to bring into this as a type of puzzle that I don't think we've said yet. So mazes, like a maze as a puzzle can be a lot of fun. And, and I argue it's definitely a puzzle. The example that I want to give, if anybody's played any of the earlier Resident Evil games, so like I'll say one, two, and three certainly uh, and then things kind of started to go off the rails. And, of course, the remakes are fantastic. I strongly recommend them personally. 
throwing that out there. If you like horror games, if you don't, I don't recommend them. You'll hate them. <laughs> Essentially, what the games are, are they're giant maze games where it's like, I have to find keys with card suits on them, and I have to use those keys to unlock doors. In order to find the keys, I have to find maybe a locker combination, or I have to find a missing key, like a keyboard key. Like I think what they literally did was look for synonyms of keys, and it's like, okay, I've got keyboard keys, I've got door keys, I've got what kind of keys can I find? The structure of it is such that the first time you play through, the frustration is you are losing resources as you navigate this world and fight monsters. And your goal is to solve the maze puzzle by finding the keys before you run out of resources. Once you know where the keys are, the replay fun is going through as quickly as possible where anytime you had to find a hint... You no longer need the hint because you just know the information. So the only thing you have to do is physically go to the key locations. And that's the reason, like, the first time you play one of these games, it's a nine-hour run-through. And the second time you play it, it's like an hour and 50 minutes. Uh, Still a lot of fun. I would say I think this is something we can 100% take into tabletop where you could have fun, where you have, like, a random encounter table to go with your maze. You let people roam around. But the reality of it is that they have to find the things that let them get through the next section. And they have to explore. So you're motivating exploration. You're having lots of combat. And in this case, uh, so we have the encounter builder on RPG bot. I definitely think you should take a look at it. You almost have to be at a higher level, like start doing something like this at like level five or level six. So you can have a bunch of CR, like one monsters to fight through. So you're more or less just knocking them down, but they're slowly whittling away at the resources of your players. And in this way, the players are looking at the logic and they're looking at the map and saying, okay, I know we have to do this or we haven't explored over here. And that's as much player as it is character, but you're relying on the characters to actually get you from point A to point B. That makes sense as a good example of method two. Yeah, so instead of using the characters to get hints, the strength of the characters buys you time to solve the puzzle that is the maze. Yeah, that's a great example. Yeah. yeah. One of the biggest problems that you'll have with both method one and method two is going to be players struggling to solve the puzzle. Like I, I have read so many stories of DMs searching the internet for puzzles for kindergartners, presenting them for their players, and watching their <laughs> their adult intelligent, experienced, well-educated players struggle to stack rings onto a central column. (laughs) Sometimes your players are going to get to the game, their brains are fried, and they're just not going to be able to solve the puzzle. Like You might give them all the hints in the world. Like, guys, the big ring goes on the bottom. uh, And... But you will get to a point sometimes with puzzles where the players just can't figure it out and the puzzle might just never get solved. That is why I propose method three. Method three is the all-character method. Instead of relying on players in whole or in part, method three relies entirely on the capabilities of the characters. Now, these are like these are your well-built, diverse skills, capable, like I can cast uh, teleport and disintegrate and our fighter can lift a train. Your heroes, they are here to solve puzzles without some abstract meta humanoid creatures maybe solving things. Method three wait, wait, takes... are, are we the humanoid creatures in this case? Uh, allegedly. Yeah. Okay, all right. Just checking. <laughs> Keep going. Keep going. So method three relies on just the capabilities of the characters. Now, you can design your puzzle to cater to the capabilities of characters as much or as little as you want. So you might build a puzzle that, like, okay, my party is all barbarians. The highest intelligence in the party is seven. I'm going to give the characters a spelling test. Or the characters have to struggle through that that spelling test by making a series of intelligence checks or something like that. Um, conversely, you might say, okay, you guys need to lift all four of these stone columns at the same time. And the barbarians are like, oh, sweet, we're built for this. And then they just hoist columns and the door opens. You can very easily cater the puzzle to be as easy or as challenging as you want based solely on the character capabilities. So that gives you a lot of flexibility. It places minimal stress on the players themselves. 
But, I mean, it, no method is perfect. Obviously, you still have the potential for failure. If roles are just not going their way that day, maybe the players can't get through the puzzle for whatever reason. Okay, I want to stop for a second. Tyler, can you differentiate what you just described mm-hmm. from a skill challenge? No. Uh, and in, <laughs> in a way, that's intentional you can very easily present a puzzle as a skill challenge. That's essentially what method three is. So you give your players like that. The classic method for running a skill challenge is you need X successes before Y failures. And the players can uh, dictate whatever skills they feel are appropriate. The like go-to number is five successes before three failures. Like that is your baseline skill challenge and skill challenges were introduced in D&D 4th edition, so um, I won't make you go back and buy the player's handbook for that unless you really want to, but uh, skill challenges have stuck around since 4th edition because they're a pretty good mechanic for handling complex tasks like this. So you can bring in a variety of skills. The players can dictate skills that they feel might be appropriate to the situation at hand, and the DM doesn't even necessarily need to prepare an answer for any given skill. Like, if your player says... Okay, we're we're looking at the puzzle where I need to fit uh, shaped blocks into appropriately shaped holes. Can I make a strength check to jam this cylinder into the square hole? And the DM might say, sure, why not? And, like, your player rolls a natural 20 and has 80 strength and just mashes those things in. You're like, okay. The door opens. You have brute forced this puzzle. Congratulations. And, and by the way, in that case, the character is making direct eye contact with the DM. Not the player. The character <laughs> is making direct eye contact with the DM as that happens. Um, I, I think and, I actually and, did that to someone in a game once. <laughs> and speaking of breaking the fourth wall a little bit, one thing that I did want to touch on before we get too far away from character skills in human puzzles, be aware that if particularly your crafty players may try and take, you know, if you ask them for make an arcana check for a hint, they may try and say, oh, okay, well, there's some magic to go on or something like that. Um, There's there's a couple ways around this. You can basically just say, tell me what you want to roll, and then you can try and work with the list of hints you have to figure it out. Or you can just say, you know, specifically if you have written specific hints for specific skills, just say, roll me a die, I'll look at your character sheet, and I'll tell you how that went. Just a thing to consider there. So for skill ch- challenges, right, we've, we've talked about this a little bit, and I've, I've talked a little bit about one that I really enjoyed where my party in the long-running Strahd campaign, we ended up taking a raft down a river, and we hit some rapids before a waterfall. And this is a thing where, like I talked about the last time we talked about skill challenges in depth, plan ahead in case of both success and failure and have progression not be gated behind success. Because, you know, when you're trusting in the dice, you're going to have situations where people may fail. Even, you know, five successes before three failures, that's that's intended to be a slightly better than 50-50 chance for the players. We had people doing all kinds of, like, I, I was doing the the very obvious, like, I'm a big burly paladin. I'm going to hang myself off the back of the raft like a rudder and try and steer us. <laughs> worked i'm just thinking though the failure mode for that is terrible (laughs) it's just you in the water (laughs) spinning in circles i you know well uh i wasn't thinking that far ahead but then you also had things like our druid polymorphs into a turtle and like goes under and like hugs the bottom of the raft to act like a keel and like Dude, it was amazing. I mean, like, everyone had really fun, creative solutions, and I don't even think he had her role for that one. It was just like, sure, you expended a wild shape. Success. Great. Awesome. So, literally, there's no way this could fail. <laughs> uh, yeah, right? Something like that. Now, with all of that said, we still lost, and we ended up, you know, careening over the waterfall. And all that meant was some of us were stuck on one side of the river, and some of us were stuck on the other side of the river with Brendan Fraser. It was great. Um <laughs> That sort of, you know, what do I want to say? That sort of engagement in a skill challenge is a great way to flex parts of the character that maybe don't come out in combat a lot. And so I honestly really advocate for 
using this, even like maybe a thing of method two, a thing of method three sometime in your arc. This can be so much fun. It has none of the problems of a classic puzzle. You can't get your players stuck. You have cases for success and failure. So, you know, if if they do fail, there's going to be some some consequence. But it's not like they're going to say, well, we can't progress until X. So I want to push back actually a little bit. What, what you just said is they can't fail. And the reason they can't fail is because as a DM, you should specifically engineer this skill challenge, this puzzle, to have an acceptable failure mode that allows the story to continue. Right. And, and what I'll say is even for method two, you could design it such that if there's a failure on the puzzle, whether it be that there was a timer and the timer ran out and the second door opened or, you know, whatever the case may be, that there has to be an alternative because ultimately in any of these methods, it could be the case that the team of players plus their characters don't find success. I actually want to take a moment to talk about if you listened to one of our very, or in fact, to our very first news episode, basically, we talked about an experience that we had where we functionally did like, what if an escape room and D&D 3.0 had a baby? They had a really good method for if you failed a room, everyone just like expends resource, like you all take damage and then you move on at the same time. That is an acceptable and we had found enjoyable failure state. Maybe the puzzle is the room is filling with acid. Once it fills with acid, it then drains away. But if you beat the puzzle, then you get to walk out before it fills with acid and you take a bunch of damage. This is the sort of thing that you can do for built-in failure states. Yeah, failure with a cost is a great way to handle like those make-or-break pass-fail situations. If If the story is blocked by success on a thing just have the failure consequence be some expenditure of resources. Like damage is really easy in games like D&D and Pathfinder. In other games, you might use like a monetary cost or something like the party needs to, the party needs to solve some problem. They can't solve it on their own. So if they pay someone to come and solve it for them. So keeping a failure response in mind for your puzzles is excellent. Random, something you touched on is using something besides skills in puzzles. So spells, class features, things like that. If your players have other options besides just straight skill roles that they can apply to the puzzle, you do need to come up with some way of how you're going to adjudicate that. It's perfectly fine to say, hey, they expended a consumable resource, so like this is costing them something, and you can just say, okay, they spent some, they spent their resource, I'm just going to give them their success. That's totally fine. If they want to spend a spell slot, like maybe your wizard says, I'm stuck on this puzzle, I need a hint, we're not getting anywhere. I cast divination and ask some divine being, hey, how do I get through this door? Yeah, just give them a success. They spent something expensive to get through it. I'm happy with that instead of a skill check. That brings up another good point that I think is worth asking. How would you handle high passive skill scores if what you need somebody to make is an intelligence check or, excuse me, an investigation or a perception check? And, you know, they have a passive perception of 17 I don't see that as a problem. I, I mean, if you have optimized your character around that, then congratulations. And again, if, if we are doing this as a skill challenge, this rotates through the, the party in initiative order. Even if one person has optimized, if you're saying, I need every person to succeed on a perception check before something, okay, you know, then then the one person super optimized doesn't matter. That person ducks when the stick comes and everybody else doesn't and takes it. <laughs> exactly. That could be one easy thing. On the other hand, I think that you should reward somebody who has optimized like that. If you have the one person who has said, yes, I have bumped my passive investigation to 20 because my entire job is finding everything, then let them find stuff. Don't punish them because they made the opportunity cost choice to do that instead of something else so throw the puzzle at them and then maybe let them feel good about their character optimization (laughs) that wasn't a waste of time good job (laughs) all right so i want to ask the question what are your favorite examples of puzzles in let's say either fantasy tabletop so i like to look at tolkien as kind of the the basis for a lot of how we think of D D and other 
dungeon fantasy style games. Uh, like original D and D was inspired more by Conan the Barbarian, but the Tolkien influence kind of took over pretty quickly. So there's a lot of Tolkien in D and D and adjacent games. Tolkien really enjoyed using riddles in his work and other puzzles. The door to the mines of Moria is a really good example of this is a puzzle that the DM thought was really, really simple and the players got stuck on it forever. Yeah. Am I allowed to spoil Lord of the Rings or is the book old enough that we're okay? I I, I think I feel safe. It feels really safe. Okay. If anyone doesn't want Lord of the Rings spoiler, uh, you're 50 years too late. So the the door says in Dwarven, speak friend and enter. The door says in Dwarven, speak friend and enter. And the intent was just say the word friend and the door opens. And they eventually figure that out. But they had to sit around and stare at that door for like hours in world. I, I almost said in game, but Lord of the Rings it wasn't a game. So... And then wasn't there like a, a lake monster that attacked them right as they got through the door? I'm sure the DM was I, like, you guys are taking forever. Lake monster. Well, actually, wasn't, wasn't that movie only like in the books? No, it, it was there in the books. Um, okay. it, although it's interesting that the movie version is the only depiction that people have started taking as canon. So that like forehead full of eyes and long tentacles, the basically Peter Jackson came up with that. And it's just now sort of accepted that that's what that thing looks like. Okay, that's fair. Good, good, good. And and there was like a twist, right, that they couldn't just say friend because they were all sitting there, speak friend and enter. What does it mean? You had to say it in... Dwarven. Yeah. yeah. In Elvish. Yeah. Elvish, Elvish, okay. Was it Elvish? I thought it was mm-hmm. a Dwarven door, so they wrote it in Dwarven. It was the door to Moria uh-huh. facing where the elves came from. Oh, you know... In all these years, I never picked up on that. Yeah, that's. I mean, if the the line from the movie is uh, Gandalf, what's the Elvish word for friend? And he says Malone, and the door opens. Yeah, and then everybody's just. <gasps> <laughs> well, apparently, I would be the player that got stuck at that door for hours. <laughs> yeah, just <laughs> shouting friend in dwarf at increasingly loud volumes. Well, and, but let's be realistic, right? Like, if that happened at your table. And it totally would if that is the puzzle you brought. Mm-hmm. They would literally be sitting there, and you would just be like, nope, no, we're not going to go any further. No, <laughs> there weren't any other options. You've got to figure this out. And then three hours later, nobody ever comes back again, <laughs> right? So it's it's fun, and, like, when you solve it, it's great. And if your players got it, like, let's say, I want to be realistic. If your table figured that out in more than five minutes or less than ten minutes— they would leave thinking, we are the smartest people alive. They would feel so happy about it. Like, it would be just like, boom, this dopamine beast. Like, they'd boost. They'd be so happy. But if it takes them more than 30 minutes, you have ruined the game forever. <laughs> That's the risk. That yeah. is kind of the inherent problem with puzzles, which is why people start to opt for method two or method three, because you can start introducing hints or just relying on player stats. Like... 5th edition doesn't have a linguistic skill. Pathfinder 1st edition does. Pathfinder 2nd edition doesn't. Uh, I think it might. (laughs) Jeez. Information falling out of my brain. So there's a linguistic skill in Pathfinder. You take ranks and it gives you more languages. And you could just make a linguistics check. Be like, oh yeah, this is clearly a language puzzle expected for the people who speak this language. Just read the stuff on the door and then the door opens. Like, yeah. So you can easily solve that with method two or method three, but method one could definitely be a huge problem for a puzzle. Like, Yeah. And if we're trying to fix that puzzle in game, like I feel like what you would almost want is whoever knew Elvish to read it, which, okay, first of all, if nobody in your party uh, can read Elvish. Let me talk about a thing that I've been experiencing for the last several weeks. So I'm playing through Out of the Abyss uh, in in my my game, and Out of the Abyss takes place in the Underdark. We are in a Dwergar city. None of us speak Dwarven. Oof. Now, fortunately, some of us speak Undercommon, and so we're able to communicate, but there's a lot of the stuff that's like meant to be like plot train that is just notes written in Dwarven, and we're like, that's great. We don't have a wizard to read your Cassiopeian languages. We we managed to get around it by I cast tongues, and we had an orc, which orcish is written in the same alphabet. We had the orc read it phonetically, and my DM said, "Sure, tongues will let you understand what he's saying." 
that's very clever. Thank you. But like, you can get to that level of dumb if you <laughs> if you are expecting your players to read a language and they just can't. I will say, I just I want to plug this any mention I get because you asked what are some favorite puzzles. I have no idea what module I originally took this from. I think it was 3.0 something. Um, it's a door that is a beholder, like it, like the it's it, like a mural of a beholder, and then at the end of the eye stalks, there are like symbols for things and. Basically, you're supposed to, like, do stuff in the room by figuring out what the beholder means. I'll try and find it to link it. I actually went and ported that both from its original instance to a higher level and then from 3.x to 5e so that I could run it in games just because I love that so much. I love plundering puzzles from old adventures because the puzzles don't really need to change that much. You can just... If there are skill checks already written associated with the puzzle, you just adapt them to whatever the new math is and the new skills are. You can take them across games. You can take them across settings. It's super easy to grab a puzzle out of D&D, use it in Star Wars or something. Yes, there are great adventures you can pull things from. We talked about White Plume Mountain. The Tales from the Yawning Portal book is actually a bunch of old adventures ported to 5th edition, including um, White Plume Mountain, Tomb of Horrors, a couple other great old-school adventures that are tons of puzzles, traps, stuff that you can just rip right out and drop into your game wherever you want. Which, Tomb of Horrors is famously basically a puzzle dungeon that will kill you. Like, everything is solvable without combat. There is a way to... I shouldn't say it that way, but like every room has a method to not die from the trap if you figure out how to not die from the trap, right? I think there's three fights in the entire dungeon, and it's it's a dungeon that could get you enough experience to get you through like two or three character levels. Like it, It's a big dungeon. There's a lot to do. Very little of it is fighting, and most of it's puzzles and traps. Yeah, so I mean, that'd be pretty cool. It's a lot of source. I think historically people have had a lot of fun. I've actually never played it. I have also never played it. So. I've, I've run it for a bunch of people who thought they were very, very good at D&D, and I proved them wrong. <laughs> well, no. I mean, that's the thing. You proved those players are not good at puzzles. <laughs> well, that's true. So Tomb of Horrors <laughs> famously was written as a tournament module for experienced D&D players who thought they were hot stuff. Like Gary Gygax sat down and said, no, I am <laughs> going to show you you are wrong. And boy, did he. Uh, there have been some updates to Tomb of Horrors across editions. Like, every edition has a version of Tomb of Horrors, and it's actually gotten a lot softer over the editions. So the 5th edition one is way less murdery than... I, I originally ran it in 3rd edition, where it was still plenty murdery, but not as much as 1st edition. Back in my day. <laughs> yeah, back in my day, or the olden days of 2005. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it's a good adventure. You can learn a lot from reading it, um, playing it. Your players should go in with a stack of character sheets because people are going to die. Uh, a, a lot of people famously TPK in the first room. Nice. Yeah, so this is the place where you want to bring the stack of sheets by which you can, you know, burn and keep yourself warm. Okay, yes. good. So I think this has been a good discussion. We've talked about the spectrum all the way from players-only knowledge to characters-only knowledge and that sweet spot in the middle where we're leveraging the players and the characters working in tandem. We've talked about some cool puzzles in History of Fantasy and Tabletop. I think let's kind of go back with the lens and talk about, at a high level across the board, what can go wrong, what are the things that we think a DM should be prepared for, and as a player, maybe how should you think about this too? So one of the things that I really just want to kick off, especially because we haven't touched much on it yet, is what is this puzzle going to add, and why is it here? So we were talking about, like, the, the door to Moria. Perfect. Yes, that, that makes sense. You want your elf friends to be able to get in. You don't want your non-elf friends to be able to get in. Fabulous. Goblins, orcs, famously not big readers. <laughs> Again, probably not going to know the elvish word for friend. Food, more like. <laughs> right. And so, or you can take that back to, like I was talking about the bow. It Maybe this is like a, a prophecy that was handed down from some divine being, like, 
this bow and these arrows are going to save the world if you know how to activate the rainbow. We are not sponsored by Skittles. <laughs> not yet. Taste <laughs> right. so, the rainbow. Optimize the rainbow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, that was bad. That, and that there was goes my train of thought. No, uh, but but I mean, so that, train that's the that's sort of thing where like. Especially if you're going to be writing, if sorry, especially if you're going to be taking the time to write in your own puzzle, or to like port something in, like we talked about, figure out why it's there, how it fits in. Don't just go into it with like, I expect you to deal with this puzzle in the middle of the forest, and they say great, and they walk around it. One thing I want to say: if you are writing your own puzzle, not inspired, not adapted from anything else, find a friend who doesn't participate with your regular game and make them solve it, please, for everyone. Because it'll feel obvious to you. You will be looking at this thinking, like, I know a lot about these three things and everybody knows a lot about these three things and it's just going to work when I put it in front of people. And you're wrong. (laughs) You're absolutely wrong. So at least having one other person who looks at it and be like, that's that's not going to work. That's a terrible idea. Um, or vice versa, like they're like, oh, obviously you do this, do this, do this, and it's solved. That's a good sign. Maybe it's actually going to work at your table. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I have both played, but I've been on both ends of those exact puzzles. Ones where I thought the answer was super obvious. Ones where the DM thought they were super obvious. And they're just as frustrating for everybody. I can go and ask my wife, like, hey, can you solve this puzzle? I know you're not in my weekly D&D game, and I would appreciate your thoughts. And she can look at it and be like, ah, yes, clearly the largest ring goes on the bottom of the Tower of Rings. Or maybe she'll look at it and say, I don't understand how these pieces go together. Maybe you should add some hints. And either way, it's going to be good feedback. It doesn't really cost you a whole lot of time or effort to do that. Yeah, just grab any random person. And and I think one of the things that you'll learn is, like, you probably have flawed assumptions of base knowledge. Absolutely. Yeah, you don't necessarily know what everyone at the table knows. You don't know what they're thinking about at the time. And a lot of people are going to come to your game maybe after work, maybe after they've had a long day and their brains are fried and something that they might know comfortably on any random day. They're, they just don't have it in their brain that day, like... I just got off a 12-hour shift at work. Uh, My brain is a fried potato. Can I just roll numbers to stab things, please? What do you call them? Uh, Click-clack math rocks? Click-clack math rocks, man. Yeah. Okay. I want to roll click-clack math rocks and get loot. That's that's all I'm here for, really. Uh, Another thing, like, we've talked about the immersion level of the game. And so, like, the, the door at Moria is a great example of it makes sense why that door is there. So something, if your table is a table that loves immersion and likes there to be reason, throwing in, you know, a a rainbow puzzle in the middle of the Lich's dungeon probably doesn't make a lot of sense unless you do a lot of twisting. Unicorns, yes. Liches, no. (laughs) And, And so, like, what's the plausibility of the particular puzzle that you've introduced being in the place where it is? And not just as, like, I saw this cool puzzle and I want to throw it in a game. Be thoughtful of that. Vice versa, if it's everybody just loves to have a lot of fun and you know these people like puzzles, it probably doesn't matter as much to them. They're probably going to have a great time. And I think that's where I feel like, Random, you said this early on. At the end of the session, even if you think it went great, ask how it went. What did you think of that? Do you want more of that? Uh, do you want less of that? And, and the answer, you know, the answer might surprise you. You might hear, I love that. I do not want it every game. And that's a great, like, that's good feedback. Now you can structure it. Like, okay, maybe every fourth session, every fifth session, we do something like this because they enjoy it at that rate. But just because you like something doesn't mean you want it every week. This is why I I really like pulling White Plume Mountain out as your maybe somebody is missing. And, you know, we, we come back to White Plume Mountain when player six isn't available and, you know, everyone else just comes back and do that. That's going to, I think that's going to hit what a lot of players want, which is like, I definitely enjoy some, some puzzling from time to time. I will say that in, in my experience, I have never run across a whole group that has been super gung ho for like, let's do all puzzles all the time. I actually just want to do tabletop escape rooms. That's actually what I'm here for. (laughs) (laughs) All right, cool. I think that's it. I think we did a whole episode. Let's, uh, let's go to a question of the week. 
All right, so our question of the week this week comes to us from Twitter, at Belzar. D&D 6E, should it have more or less crunch than 5E? That's an interesting question. So we might we might answer this as the next evolution of D&D, quote-unquote, which comes out in 2024, which we don't know yet if it's going to be... Like, is it going to be labeled as 5.5 or 6th edition? We've been told that it's supposed to be backwards compatible. So in my head, it's 5.5. But let's let's try and answer it both ways. Actually, I'm going to go and release this now. I'm going to leak it out. Uh, it's going to be D&D Infinite. You're welcome. <laughs> uh, D&D is a service. <laughs> I was about to make that joke and... <laughs> Rats. You beat me to it. <laughs> Sorry. So let's look at 5-5. Five, five. If it's going to be backwards compatible, it's going to be more or less the same as 5th edition. So they can't make huge changes to the core rules because then it won't be backwards compatible. Like if you look at the transition from 3rd edition to 3-5, the core of the game still essentially stayed the same. Like they updated some problematic systems they rebalanced a bunch of things they've removed some feats that didn't need to exist things like that but the core like the resolution mechanics how skills worked how spells work all those things stayed the same so i expect that going from fifth edition to five five it's pretty much going to be the same thing like they will they will clean up some of the warts in the system they'll rebalance some things like the core classes They'll update the core races, like everything will get a new layer of polish and it'll look really nice and it'll carry us on for another five to ten years. If we eventually get a sixth edition, which if past is precedent, yeah, we obviously will, someday there will be a sixth edition, which is a reimagining of the rules of D&D. I don't know if it will be more or less crunch. Honestly, I think it should stay about the same. Like, D&D is, in a lot of ways, the center of gravity for the tabletop RPG world. So having it at that kind of mid-level of crunch is a really good baseline, and then people can go up or down as their tastes go. Yeah, well, one thing that I'm going to say, right, having watched the progression of how popular D&D has become across 20 years, it is, at this moment, more accessible than it ever has been and more popular than it ever has been, and... I, I mean, I think the correlation there is very self-explanatory. I think that what they've done is they've boiled it down to a very simple, very robust system. And I think that in particular, the way that they've done it where a lot of things are opt-in complexity via um, variants like we talked about in whatever episode that was a couple ago, where things like, like 3.x's carrying capacity system is an add-in variant things like oh that well th- there were a couple others that we talked about in there that were basically like this is just how it was in 3.x you don't have to do that but you can i i really like what they've built there and i think that i mean there's maybe a few extra things you could strip down but realistically i think that this the sixth edition is probably going to be I or I would like it if it was to answer the should question. I think it should be about where it is now, maybe a little bit less with some more opt-in complexity options. But yeah, honestly, it's as popular as it is now because they hit it really well. Yeah, so I'll, I'll add two cents to this. When we did the variant rules episode, we talked about the fact that the variant rules aren't well balanced against each other, potentially. In other words, there was nobody seeking to make sure they are well balanced. So I think... If you do like what Random just said, where you say, here's more opt-in systems, where if you want more crunch, you have more crunch. If you don't want it, the base rules are about what they are. I shouldn't say they. The complexity level of the base rules are about the same as they are in 5e. I think that makes a lot of sense. I think an improvement you could make in 6e is seeking to balance those opt-in rules in multiple sets where they do work really well together so that any, you know, any combination of the variants all together comes together really well. In fact, I could actually really explicitly see a thing that you did where you say, here's the base set of rules, and then here are 15 explicitly well-play-tested variants, and here are, like, our favorite combinations of four. Like, if you put this rule and this rule and this rule together, here is your gritty realism. If you put this rule and this rule and this rule together, here is your uber-power fantasy trip. If you put this and this together, 
then you are a 18th century French bard, right? Something like that, <laughs> you know. But I think that if they could take that opt-in complexity and even add a little bit of guardrails onto that, I think that that would be sort of what Randall was talking about, where, like, not just balancing against each other, but actually here's some things that we think as package deals could be a, a nice addition. Yeah, and if you want to see an example of how that's done well, the Pathfinder 2nd Edition Game Mastery Guide, which we talked about in the Variant Rules episode, has a collection of Variant Rules for Pathfinder 2nd Edition to introduce or alter systems, and they explicitly in the book talk about, like, here's how you could combine these things, maybe don't combine these. If you combine these, you also need this to fix some problems. So... This can absolutely be done, and yeah, it would be fantastic to see that in 6th edition D&D. Yeah, so there's one other piece of this that I want to bring up. A lot of folks already use, uh, let's say, D&D Beyond to manage their character. You know, we're, we're using tools to manage the game. And so as much as the crunch has been reduced, we're still bringing electronics in. And if you really understand the rules, like once you've got everything down, you understand your character, it's pretty easy to use your click-clack math rocks to run everything uh, until you get to the point where, like, I need 12 of these and it's just not 10 of one. I'm going to Google anyway to roll or I'm going to D&D Beyond to roll. I say that to say, as popular as the game has become, I think if the complexity goes much higher we might step into this weird world where it's almost like a pseudo video game that I'm playing in an open structure with friends where like the app is driving so much of what I do and is helping me make so many decisions because I don't want to do the homework to understand it, that it actually feels like I'm, I'm playing this hybridization of tabletop and video game. So there's my fear mongering for like adding too much crunch, crunch by default. There's some validity to that. Fourth edition arguably was built to work with a digital tool set that never got off the ground. But there are games that are way crunchier than D&D that work just fine. GURPS, Hero, they're both famously massively, massively crunchy systems with a lot of math to be done. Um, and they work just fine, and they've been around for like 30, 40 years. And, and I'm making like the uh, this argument probably isn't valid, but let's party for a second. As popular, like how many people are playing 5e versus how many play, people are playing GURPS? It's orders of magnitude different. Like, okay. yeah, 5e is way bigger. So if one order of magnitude more players basically have to adopt the tools that we're describing to keep playing, I, I think that could be a significant impact on how people enjoy it to the point where, you know, I, I imagine, you know, it becomes this thing of DM saying, it's like, oh, you know, it has to be character sheets and dice at my table only and like having that kind of thing because they're so resistant to what might be happening online. I'm, I, I really am fear mongering. I just, I think if you, <laughs> yeah, if, if 6E were to go too far in the crunch, I think either the game might have to regress a bit or a large group of players might become very dependent on these tools because the best thing about 5e has been the accessibility to it. Yeah, I agree totally. All right. And with that, all hail the leisure Illuminati. Hail, 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 hail. All right. I'm Randall James. You can find me at amateurjack.com and at Jack Amateur on Twitter and Instagram. I'm Tyler Kampstra. You'll find me at rpgbot.net, Facebook and Twitter at rpgbotdotnet, and patreon.com slash rpgbot. And I'm Random Pell. You'll find me behind a puzzle door uh, because I don't really participate in social media. Um, although with that said, someone made the high investigation check and did it. Exactly one. Um, so mostly you'll find me here on RPG Bot contributing to the podcast, of course, and articles on the site or in places where people play games. I am usually there as Harlequin or Harlequin. If you enjoyed the show, please rate, review us on Apple Podcast and rate us on Spotify or your favorite podcast app. It's a quick free way to support the podcast, and helps us to reach new listeners. You can find links in the show notes. You'll find the affiliate links for sourcebooks and other materials linked in the show notes, as well as on rpgbot.net. Following these links helps us to make this show happen every week. If your question should be the question of the week next week, please email podcast at rpgbot.net or message us on Twitter at rpgbotdotnet. Please also consider supporting us on Patreon, where you'll find early access to RPGBot.content, polls for future content, and access to the RPGBot.discord. You can find us at www.patreon.com slash RPGBot. (laughs) 
Welcome to the RPG Bot Doc Podcast. I'm Randall James, your puzzled puzzler. <laughs> I don't think you could record a better sting. That's just perfect. <laughs> Welcome to the RPG. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> 